I doubt many of us remember our high school biology classes well enough to list the characteristics that are shared by all living organisms. But we all have a good sense of the difference between a living body and a corpse. It is not a matter of the physical components, which can be identical in either case, nor even of their operation, which can be artificially sustained or stimulated, but rather the mysterious quality of spirit, of which integrated life is the manifestation. And while science can detect and measure the signs of life that indicate its presence, spirit itself lies beyond the reach of science. The realm of science is the natural world, and spirit is supernatural, of divine origin. We see this in the creation of Adam, as God takes the material elements from nature and forms them into a body. But that body does not live until God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. That image of God inspiriting Adam should strike a chord with the gospel that was just proclaimed, in which Jesus breathes on his disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit. But what does the parallelism of these two episodes indicate? The solemnity of Pentecost is not merely the coming of the Holy Spirit to the disciples, but inseparably the creation of the Church, which St. Paul describes as a body united under the head of Jesus Christ, vivified by the one Spirit. You and I, all of us together, correspond to the clay of the earth from which Adam's body was formed. The body we form also requires vivification. God the Holy Spirit, whom the Creed calls the Lord, the giver of life, is the supernatural principle that keeps the corpus of the Church from being a mere corpse. If in the natural realm all living creatures have signs of life that manifest their spirit, are there signs of life in the Church that continue to testify to and manifest the presence of the Holy Spirit? Of the many possible affirmative answers, I offer the one Jesus himself immediately connected with the Holy Spirit in today's Gospel, forgiveness. To see how this is so, let us consider a healthy human body in which all the parts work together for the good of the whole. If you suddenly need to run, your heart and lungs are not offended by your legs' demands, but immediately leap into action to provide the blood and oxygen they require for all the members to escape the danger. But in certain cases, our body can be at odds with itself. Take the case of an autoimmune disease. The body's immune system, responsible for protecting the body from outside infection, can become confused and mistakenly perceive the body itself as a threat and begin to attack it with all the resources at its disposal. This image of a body at war with itself and the devastating consequences of that conflict captures well the current cultural atmosphere of polarization, a malaise that has a great deal to do with the refusal to forgive. So how does forgiveness restore and maintain spiritual health and integrity? In the first place, refusing to forgive makes me a slave. When I forgive, it sets me free. To forgive is to break the chains of reciprocity and step outside the cycles of vengeance. The offense is acknowledged, but I decline to demand retribution. Rather than being locked into trying to hold the other person responsible, I am free to live, not weighed down by the burden of, wearing, of bearing a grudge.
and this is to enter the sovereign freedom of Christ, who from the cross forgave us all, and was so free that hell could not hold him. A second truth about forgiveness is that it is a divine prerogative. The Pharisees were scandalized when Jesus forgave sins and asked, Who can forgive sins but God alone? When we forgive, we do not enter a freedom like God's. We enter God's own freedom, his own life, knowing him and living in him. We are incorporated. As St. Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. As we enter that life by forgiving, we will begin to discover both how forgiving he is and how lovingly we have been forgiven. But another way, this is Jesus' oft-repeating teaching that we shall be forgiven our trespasses in accord with how we have forgiven the trespasses of others. It is the life of grace. These first two life-giving aspects of forgiveness apply more to the one who forgives, but a final consideration applies especially to the one who is forgiven. When we refuse to forgive, we bind a person to their sin. We make it define them. It says, You are the person who did this, and I will never let you be anything else. Forgiveness is an invitation to conversion. This says, You are not your sin. What you have done is not who you are. Forgiveness sees a person beyond the trespass and offers the opportunity to be something better, something new. It is a breath of life, a moment of creation. But for this to be effective, forgiveness must be received, and that asks us to acknowledge our sins and seek pardon. Squarely facing our trespasses and admitting the harm we have done is not a comfortable experience. Being forgiven can be as vulnerable and frightening as forgiving. But it is a place we must enter if we wish to know our Lord and live in him. In confession, we hear that the Father has sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. In the Eucharistic prayer, that same Spirit is invoked to consecrate the bread and wine as the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, making truly present him who, dying, forgave us, and rising, eternally intercedes for us. Trusting in his mercy, let us offer to him the wounds we have received and the trespasses we have committed. Seeking his healing and forgiveness, may we be recreated as the men and women he sees us to be, his brothers and sisters, members of his body, of his church. As the ministers process from the altar to distribute communion, may we see our Lord coming to each of us with his pardon and peace. And having made us one in himself, he sends us forth into a death-bound culture to set the world ablaze with the Holy Spirit's fire of forgiving life. <laughs>